Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Bridget Stewart, the Vice President for Physician Services at the Elliott Health System in Manchester, New Hampshire. Bridget's career spans a wide variety of hospitals and clinical activities. She has worked at several famous Boston hospitals, such as Brigham and Women's, Boston Children's, and most recently before coming to the Elliott as the Vice President for Operations at the Joslin Diabetes Clinic. In addition to earning her bachelor's degree from health management and policy here at the University of New Hampshire, she holds an MBA and a doctor of law and policy. In this podcast, she talks about her career journey and some of the differences between the organizations she has worked for and concludes with advice to early careerists. This full-length podcast is approximately 84 minutes in length, an abridged version of the podcast is available that only focuses on her roles at Joslyn and the Elliot. Welcome to The Forge, Bridget. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm excited because you are the third health management and policy alumnus in a row to be on The Forge, and you're the third senior woman leader, which I think is really exciting as well. So as I said, you graduated from the University of New Hampshire in 1996 with a degree in health management and policy, which is my department. Uh, How did you choose UNH, and how did you come to be a health management and policy major? Did you come in as a a, major? That's a a great question. So yes, I happened to um, work at Anna Jake's Hospital in Newburyport, and following a legacy of my grandmother, who was the head pharmacist there, my mother, who worked there for probably about 20 years, I started as a transport tech and knew that healthcare was a place that I wanted to be. And as a transport tech, I was able to really kind of get around the hospital and see a lot about the different areas and was really focused on business. And I think at 15, I scheduled some time with the president there. His name was Alan DeRosier. And I said, how do, how do I get your position type of thing? At 15? At 15. Oh, wow. Um, so I had just started. I think I had just gotten a work permit, and I was in transport, and I was able to, you know, kind of get on his calendar. I think they thought I was probably crazy, which at 15, you have a lot. I was bold. And so I was able to get, you know, a meeting with him. And I don't know where he is today, but it was probably that meeting that really kind of gave me the, you know, oomph to really understand that uh, the business aspect of healthcare was was big, and it was important, and it, you know, played a large role and, you know, delivering health care as we did then and as we do today. So I would say that, you know, that was when I knew health care was where I wanted to be and then that business side. I went to a school in Byfield, Mass. It was called Triton. And the guidance counselor was aware of a program that we have regionally in the Northeast. They used to call it the Apple program. I think it's something else now. But it allowed me in Massachusetts to get into a UNH school for, I think, in-state plus half or something like that. And it was great. It gave me the opportunity to learn about UNH, about the program I met with. I think it was Richard Lewis was the dean back then and just immediately fell in love with the program and came in as a freshman in the program. Okay, so that, that I think that program is still available. It's, I think it's called the New England Exchange or something ah, like that. Yes. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, so if you're in the New England area and uh, if, you're, if you live in a New England state and your state school doesn't have a program, I think it allows you to go to another New England school for something like in-state tuition. 
Exactly. Yeah. I think okay, it was so in-state plus half, and it was it was great. I think there was other um, kind of variances, very, you know, variations on that, that program, but they didn't have healthcare management policy. So. Okay, so you knew right from high school that you wanted to do it, and so you matriculated into the program as a, or excuse me, into the school mm -hmm. as a major. Okay, mm -hmm. great. Yeah, and I, I understand that, and you will be teaching 401, um, but I do understand that that's where a lot of students do recognize that this is a, you know, a great field and a great place to be, but no, that I came in starting off with this was my major and this is where I wanted to be. Neat. So I saw that you did your internship at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. So HMP majors are required to do an internship. Was this back in the time when you did it in the summer, or was this, or were they still uh, doing it during the year? Yeah, no, this was absolutely. It was during the summer, so okay. it was uh, you know a three month, just like it is today. And I happened to know a nurse uh, because I worked at Anna Jake's, a nurse in the ED. I worked at that time as a unit coordinator in the emergency department. And she had known someone at, you know, who knew someone, and basically it was one of the VPs at Beth Israel Deaconess. She made a contact for me or a connection for me, and, and I was able to, you know, kind of get a internship at the BI. And, you know, one thing I always tell my students when I take students is it's really about the networking. So it's really working your networks, you know, asking people and, you know, making those connections. So it worked for me. So I went to the, the Beth Israel, and it was before it was Beth Israel Deaconess, which it is today, and it was a great organization. Um, some of what I did was I worked with the associate um, vice president for operations. I've, you know, talked with him over the years, you know, here and there, and he's, you know, kept me up to date. He was great. He just kind of gave, it gave me a real perspective of what leadership did. Uh, I did things like helped with some disaster planning for joint commission, and I'm, I'm thinking back, it was, yeah. gosh, almost 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, it was sure. quite a long time ago, but it was a great experience, and he really, you know, just tried to bring me in and give me all of the information I needed. I attended a lot of meetings, but got to see a lot there. Yeah, great. That sounds like a great experience. So how did that how did that shape your future kind of goals and and plans? Yeah, you know, I would say that that shaped it a lot. I, I think operations is something that's so important to healthcare, you know, really trying to do things better with less, more efficiently. Uh, it really resonated with me. So, you know, going in and, and kind of viewing what they were doing with operations, it included space planning facilities. Where do we want to, you know, we had a uh, location in Lexington, I think we had just opened. They were building the Shapiro building in Boston. They were looking at a merger. I was semi-aware of some of that. But it really kind of helped me understand, you know, what was happening in healthcare. So I would say that was, you know, absolutely, you know, formidable. Uh, for me in terms of really getting some, you know, solid experience. And I think, you know, my last role at the Jocelyn was VP of Clinical Operations, which really linked to, you know, that role there. Yeah. And, you know, I think everything we do as leaders in healthcare has that link back to operations. So yeah. it was just a superb experience. That sounds great. I have to mention quickly here that you received the 2015 Preceptor Award from the department uh, from my department, from HMP, uh, for your support of internship programs here at, at HMP. So thank you for that. And we'll talk a little more about, about that maybe in, in, at, at the end of the podcast. So you graduated um, from HMP, and then you went off to Iowa. And in Iowa, you earned your MBA from St. Ambrose University. So what made you decide to pursue an MBA? And why immediately upon graduation? And, and why did you head off to Iowa? Doesn't everyone do that? I, you know, well, that's what I've heard. All the kids are doing it. So. Out to Iowa. Um, well, I was, um, I happened to meet this gentleman. Uh, I don't know if uh -huh. I'd call him a gentleman in college. But anyway, <laughs> I, I met someone in college, happened uh -huh. to be my husband. We uh -huh. met at UNH. Okay. Uh, I met him my sophomore year. Okay. He happened to be graduating, I think he graduated my sophomore year. 
he was playing hockey. I played at UNH and was playing professionally. So um, he had gone out to Iowa and he was, you know, moving out there. At the same time, I was in the midst of trying to figure out, is it the right time for me to go back for my master's or, you know, what, what should be my approach? And, you know, I advise students now that probably some experience is probably the best, you know, way to go. Not what I did, but it was probably the best way to go. I followed him to Iowa and he did propose first. So for okay. anyone listening, right. for any of those young ladies, you know, he did propose first. So I did have a commitment, but I did follow him to Iowa where, where he was playing. And I um, started interviewing. And I think Iowa was in a different place from a healthcare perspective. And, and they didn't recognize who I was and what I was trying to do. So I think in, you know, in the Northeast, we understand, I understand someone coming out of their undergrad, you know, I n- understand what experience they need. I had some experience, probably about four or five years of experience as a unit coordinator, transport tech. I worked at New England uh, Healthcare Assembly, you know, some of these other places. Um, but no one knew what to do with me. Okay. They were kind of trying to figure out, you know, should she be a director? And I was at the point where I would wash the floors in a hospital for they'd just give me a job so I could prove oh, myself. Okay, okay. You know, I, I just wanted, you know, to, to prove myself. Yeah. And, and I really couldn't find a job. So I was actually out for a year, Okay. you know, trying to figure out where to go. Um, I had talked to some folks at St. Ambrose was uh, one of the nicer colleges out there and had talked to the, I think it was the dean at that time and, you know, met with him, really liked him. It was a one-year executive program. Um, So I decided, I waited tables for a year and decided that, you know, I just, I wanted to go back to school and if I couldn't get a job in my field out there where things were just, it was at a different time. People didn't quite understand what to do to do with me that I could you know, maybe go back to school. So that's what I did. I, I um, decided to go back. I went back to my master's in business. Okay. I didn't have a healthcare what? concentration. Uh, they didn't have that available? They did not. It okay. was a straight MBA. Uh, I think they introduced concentrations after. Okay. But I would say that it wasn't a problem. I actually have advised students if they go back, going for the straight MBA, it gave me different pers- a different perspective and I think it, you know, broadened what I can do, you know, in my career. So I've op- obviously opted to stay in healthcare. But I think that opportunity to, you know, kind of branch out or really understand kind of other aspects of business right. um, was really complementary to, to, you know, my undergrad, my solid undergrad. And I think we learned so much about healthcare management that, you know, broadening that with that business degree was, was probably good for me anyway. Okay. So you got the business degree. And so shortly after graduating, you took a position at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics in Iowa City as an administrator for the cardiology clinical programs. And and so for those of us who are not familiar with the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics, can you kind of briefly describe the organization and where did you fit in in that position in the organization? Yeah, it's um, a large academic medical center. So the University of Iowa obviously has residence training. They have dental school. They have an affiliation with the VA. They're um, a good size, and I, I couldn't tell you the number of beds today, but a good size organization, full complement of services they offer from, you know, OB, you know, maternity to, you know, geriatrics. They offer, you know, all services. The Department of Medicine had, you know, a, a division of cardiology similar to most academic medical centers. I worked for the medical director, clinical medical director for cardiology. My role was somewhat like a practice manager. I didn't have a whole lot of supervisory experience. I, you know, I I would say it was Um, co-supervisory. This was a new position for them. They were trying to figure it out. I would say I did a lot of business planning, trying to figure out we had a poor match one year, so trying to figure out how do we staff. We brought in um, nurse practitioners, which was new, nurse practitioners and PAs to try to, you know, continue to staff at a level that we needed. We looked 
looked at some of the programs in our clinic and identified more efficient ways of delivering care through pacemaker clinics and that kind of thing. So it was a lot of business analysis, which was a lot of fun. And I would say there it really got me some exposure to billing, okay. CPT codes and billing and financials, which I really think is a nice solid basis for anyone getting into healthcare. Obviously in undergrad, we learned a lot about that, but here it gave me the opportunity to really kind of put into practice and start analyzing some of those numbers and really digging into them and understanding them. And I think that was probably what I learned most from that, that position and that role that really helped me as I, I progressed in my career. Okay, and you did. So in 2000, you worked in the cardiology program there in Iowa until about 2000 when you returned to New England and took a job at Brigham and Women's as the Associate Administrator for the Department of Medicine. Can you talk a little bit about Brigham and Women's and then kind of how the Department of Medicine fits into that organization? Yeah, so the Brigham and Women's is a, obviously a very large force in, in um, you know, Boston Healthcare and Longwood area. The department, another academic medical center, Harvard affiliate, I, the Department of Medicine is one of the larger departments. Um, I worked for the vice chairman of medicine. I came in and, you know, I think the interview process was interesting and I have to give a credit back to the University of New Hampshire. Really, it was through the listserv that Chris Hammond, who, oh, you know, she does okay, it and she sure. continues to do it. She's That's wonderful. Right. I think she had sent out an email to the listserv and it was from a colleague of mine. Uh, Erica, who I had talked with about her internship, you know, she was a couple of years after me. And again, it's all about that networking. And so she had sent something out. I think there was a practice manager job at the Brigham. And so I, I reached out, I think, to Erica and said, what do you think about this? And, you know, I used it as an opportunity to get home to, to Massachusetts, New England. And I got an interview, of course, and you know I think that's again the value of the network. And and through that interview, I met with Sue Gilly. She was she headed up the practice managers at, at the Brigham. And what happened was I was able to meet with the vice chairman. Sue said, you know, you've kind of done this job. You've been a practice manager, but I'd like you to meet someone. So I met the vice chairman. And it was that day, and I think my mother had come with me, and she sat in the lobby. She had driven me in and okay. sat in the lobby, and. Um, the interview was supposed to be maybe an hour and it lasted four. Um, wow. <laughs> so um, Dr. Brown, Monty Brown, had said, well, you know, I want you to meet with this vice president and, and this person and this person. And so I thought, wow, this is great. So there was no job, but he just wanted me to meet with these people. So I met with a lot of them. And I think I flew back on Sunday. By Wednesday, I had a job offer. They had created a position. By Wednesday, they had created a new position. Yeah, a new position. <laughs> I mean, this was. I mean, this just speaks to Dr. Yeah. Brown. Uh -huh. He had created a position, and um, I had a job offer, and had to make a decision. You know, do we uproot? My husband was at the top of his career in the Quad Cities. He was our all-time leading scorer, and uh -huh. you know, so uh -huh. uproot. You know, this was a great opportunity for me. And, and what do we do? And we did decide to go back to the Brigham, and um, I worked with Dr. Brown for a number of years, and. I think he was the one I, I probably learned the most from in my career. Okay. I don't know if I've ever told him this, so maybe he'll listen to this oh, podcast. We'll to send someday. him a link. That's right. That's right. But um, you know, I, I think he was just such a good teacher, and you know, that's part of being in an academic medical center is you really do get that. You know, you get people who like to teach, who like to you know help, and he always gave me the frame. So when I was you know when he was giving me a project or something that I needed to do, it was framed. So I knew when I went into something. I had I had all the facts that I needed so I could make an informed decision. So I'd, I'd say as a you know as a, a leader as a mentor that's something that's always stuck with me and resonated with me and something that I try to you know give back and and do that. The other thing I learned from him is 
you know, just make it happen. You know, so, you know, the example of him creating a job in three days, you know, and, you know, interviewing with pretty much everyone and, you know, administration there and get it done today. Let's not wait and schedule and let's just, you know, kind of make it happen. So, um, you know, really learned a lot from him. And, um, you know, the Brigham was a great place, learned a lot there. And um, over time, I was promoted to work for the chairman of medicine. And he, he works, I think, for the Institute of Medicine right now. Um, but he's just a, a force in, in the field and, and very knowledgeable and kind of a real thought leader. So he learned a lot there. That's great. So for folks who are not familiar kind of with the structure of what's in the department, what, what uh, falls up under the Department yeah, of Medicine? Great question. So um, similar to Iowa, so I'm taking for granted that folks know kind of academic Some medical do, but, centers. Some do, but yeah. let's just throw that um, But quickly. I think that's a great question. So I've, oftentimes, most times in the Department of Medicine, I'll list a few. So you might have, you know, one of the big departments is cardiology. So cardiology would be in medicine, cardio, uh, cardiothoracic surgery or cardiac surgery would be in surgery, in the Department of Surgery. Oftentimes things like infectious disease, rheumatology, gastroenterology, pulmonary, neurology, but most of those medicine type services where there's no surgical intervention, no okay. surgery would be in the Department of Medicine, just kind of a nice way to think of it. And I'd say that's pretty traditional in most academic medical centers in terms of how they, how they structure their departments. And usually that's dictated by the training programs um, in terms of, you know, for us it was Harvard at the University of Iowa, it was University of Iowa, but how residents and trainees and interns come into the departments and how they train. So they had a, they had a number of residencies in, mm. at Brigham? Yes, very okay. big resident, uh, interns, uh, residents and fellows, Okay. very big program. Okay. So the job took you back to New England. I was going to mm -hmm. ask you if maybe it was again the hus your husband took me but, out, but you took but, him back. but you took him back. I okay. think he, he he frowned the whole time, but but we made it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. It's a partnership, right? <laughs> While you were at Brigham, what kind of leadership responsibilities did you have? I'd say you know there were financials and budgets and you know more business planning. Okay. My role there was really that of. You know, you might call it a business planner or uh, internal consultant where he would find opportunities. And, and I think this was the beauty of the position where we needed to, you know, kind of really dig in or understand. And the leaders or managers in those departments were probably busy with their day to day and didn't have the time to step back but recognize that there might be some opportunity. So for me, I had the ability to go in, you know, do the analytics work with him. I mean, he had, you know, given me a ton of direction, you know, make some recommendations and then implement those. So for me, it was an opportunity to see, I think I did stuff with GI, with endocrine, with cardiology. I did things that span the, uh, the uh, course of the entire Department of Medicine. So it was a real experience for me to be able to see a lot of those different departments. In terms of supervisor, I didn't have a whole lot of supervisory experience, okay. but enough so I had some experience, and I think that's probably something he did consciously to okay. give me that, you know, experience so I could grow in my career. So you stayed there till 2002 when you moved to another Boston hospital, Boston Children's, um, to be the administrator for the Department of Cardiology. So back to cardiology again. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the mission of Boston Children's and uh, the mission specifically of the Department of Cardiology? Mm -hmm. Well, if you listen to the radio in Boston, you'll know that the Boston Children's mission is until every child is well. It's changed since I've been there, but it's basically been about the same. It's an amazing place, as are any of the organizations I've worked. Children's is an amazing place, amazing leadership. You know, I was looking for something where I had more, you know, autonomy, 
where I could exercise my supervisory, you know, kind of experience where I could really grow. Um, and, and Boston Children's and the uh, administrator position really gave me that. I worked with the vice president for patient care services, our cardiovascular services. That's Her name's Patty Hickey. She was a nurse, and she's uh, got just recently uh, achieved her Ph.D., and I worked also with Jim Locke, who was the chairman of medicine there for some time and also the chief of, of cardiology. And really, I think the thing about children's was that there was just a passion for the children that we, that we cared for. And, and, and I think, you know, there's a big nursing presence at Children's Hospital, and it really shows in that there's such a, a tie back to the patient and family and the experience. And... Uh, things we did like parent presence or, you know, that they did on the units. How do you engage with parents while you're treating their children? I remember walking down the hall one day and seeing one of my doctors who looked a little bit, you know, distressed or downtrodden, and I, and I said, what's going on? And he had just spent the night with one of his patients. So it's just that real caring and, you know, being in a place where there's just such a commitment to the patients. So it was a great feeling, great place to work. Yeah, neat. So that you, you started to kind of answer my next question, which kind of rotates around. This is now your third hospital mm-hmm. that you've seen. Can you... Fourth, with Anna Jakes. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, so fourth, <laughs> right. And really, I guess maybe fifth because you... you well, no, you came oh, back. Oh, the, the BI, yeah. There's a few. So, gosh. So you, so, you, so you started to accumulate uh-huh. some organizations, you know, in your experience. Can you talk a little bit about kind of maybe some of the differences that you've seen, you saw between the organizations? Like, what was you talked about? Kind of what really stood out in yeah. a positive way for children's? What were the? Yeah, I what think. Are you, what are you starting to, to learn at this point in your career you know, about I the differences in the organization? Looking and the back, I can learn more. You know, while I was going through it, I was just trying to get through day to day and trying to sure. figure it out. You know, I think looking back in Iowa, it was a big organization. It was some time ago, so it's kind of hard for me to, you know, really recollect, you know, my experience there. I was, you know, in a position where I didn't have a whole lot of purview. You know, I was kind of doing right. the day to day. I think as I've grown in my career, I've been able to see more of the strategy. You know, I think at the Brigham, it's a big organization. It's hard to make things happen. Children's was a little bit smaller. Okay. You know, I think rallying folks around a single mission is a bit easier as you get into a smaller organization. You know, I think the, I mentioned the nursing presence. That's something that's really important. I worked incredibly closely with, there was a, um, a colleague of mine, I talked with her this week, and she happens to be the goddaughter of my, of my child, and um, she's the director of nursing for cardiovascular services there. And we really formed this partnership. So, you know, as the administrator, I think it's important to form those relationships and those partnerships. I don't know about clinical care. I will never know about clinical care, right. but it's infor- important for me to round that out. So, if we look at you know where our blind spots are, that's one of my blind spots. So forming a triad, I think, as an administrator, so having your nursing leadership, your physician leadership, and administrative leadership, you know, really come together around that vision and mission is important. So I think, you know, as I've, you know, progressed in my career, I've recognized, you know, those partnerships that need to happen and how do we work together to really form those. And, you know, just to kind of fast forward to today, I think that's something that's really happening here in my current role, and we'll talk about that more, I'm sure, in a little bit. But that's something that's really important and really something that I can take away from children's okay. in terms of, you know, the organization, how it works. There was a transparency at children's. It was smaller than the Brigham, but it was still a good size. You know, you could walk through the halls and you knew a lot of people. Another thing with children's was at the director level, 
I had a lot of colleagues that we started different initiatives and really, again, working together with them to get things up and off the ground, you know, really resonated throughout the organization and they really allowed that and supported that. So, for example, the internship program. So we worked closely with with uh, UNH and we tried to be agnostic and we did work with others, but UNH obviously had the best students. <laughs> obviously. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, we worked together to really rally the other directors and find out, you know, how many students did we need. And um, I'd say, you know, working with my colleagues, we put together a book. It was their vision, but, you know, being part of that, I think there was three of us putting together a book about what we needed to help out for the summer in terms of intern in terms of internships and being able to advertise those bring them in we did round robin interviews and those still happen you know so this is still ongoing which is you know really exciting for me but i think the fact that we had the autonomy to do that at children's was something that was really great and i think you know something you and i might have you know talked a little bit about was management grand rounds at children's yes so that really that. you know blossomed out of you know, my colleagues and I being at a conference, you know, MGMA, you know, happens every year. And MGMA is what? Uh, Medical Group Management Association. Okay. It's a, a professional association where they try to, you know, bring education and new learning and teachings to administrators. And we happen to be there and usually happens in the fall. And we would break up and, and different folks would go to different uh, sessions and we'd come back and meet after them and, and try to talk, you know, this is what, you know, I took from this and it was a great learning opportunity to learn from one another. And we started talking and thinking, we have so much of this knowledge at Children's and in Boston, in the Longwood area, that we could start tapping into this and promulgating this information out throughout our organization for folks that, you know, maybe report to us and, you know, we want to help them grow. So Grand Rounds is typically something that medical folks do um, where they, you know, try to take a topic or something that they've learned and they, you know, bring that to their colleagues so they can all learn. Maybe it might be um, research on a certain topic or some, you know, something they, they've um, investigated the research or they've done their own research where they bring that to their colleagues so they can learn and, you know, Im implement that in practice. So we felt like, well, we could have a management Grand Rounds. So... Uh, we started management grand rounds and we started asking, you know, for one, the folks that worked at Children's. So we had a wealth of knowledge at Children's and half of which could have taught these sessions, you know, that we were at. So we started integrating them. And then in addition, there's folks, you know, we were right next door to Harvard or Northeastern or, you know, a lot of these other organizations. And, you know, a lot of us had a number of connections. So we started bringing those folks in and it was a brown bag lunch. We limited it to about 40, 40 participants. And um, yeah, yeah, we would um, pass out or hand out if there was handouts beforehand. And I have a feeling, and this was probably, you know, at least eight or nine years ago, I think it's still ongoing. I mean, it really, you know, brings for, you know, maybe someone coming out of their career that's in an entry level position but wants to continue to grow. It doesn't cost a whole lot to the organization. It's lunchtime. Right. You know, these folks do it on their own. So I, you know, and again, it was something that we had as, a, um, you know, administrative directors that came up with and, and the hospital supported it and supported that effort and that initiative. So that just speaks a little bit to children's. Yeah. What a great initiative. Mm. I mean, that's a, that's a great way to learn and, and learn from each other. And it's low cost and, and, and networking. Networking, uh, and it really uh, helps the, you know, the folks that work for us. I mean, they learn and they can, you know, now they know what, I, I think I taught a class, a session on capital budgeting and we had someone, uh, one of my doctors had a, has a wife, uh, Linda Hill, who's just a brilliant, um, you know, business uh, professor at Harvard who came in and she just did an amazing session or, you know, we just had, you know, some Christian, Clayton Christensen's um, colleague came oh, in and, and yeah. taught us about that. So just some, you know, big names and, and nice connections and nice learnings. 
Nice, nice. So the title of your position was administrator. What did that mean? And, and then also, in 2007, you were promoted to administrative director. So what was the administrator? What was the administrative director? What, was, what, what additional responsibilities did you take on when you became the administrative director? I would say that I came in as, in as the administrator. Cardiology was a good-sized department in the organization a lot, and this was one case where the Department of Cardiology did not fall under the Department of Medicine. In most academic okay. medical centers, as you probably yeah, know, yeah. Mark, um, cardiology is a division of medicine. And I mentioned that's the way it is at the Brigham, and that's the way it is at Iowa, that's the way it is at the BI, you know, so most academic medical centers, that's the case. In cardiology, it wasn't the case. So I had um, the administrative responsibility for our department. So it was a little bit different than a division. So I think at some point throughout my career, you know, at Children's, that was pretty much, you know, I think it was a recognition for that. And I think that's why the title changed. Ah, okay. So I think it was more of a realignment with HR and that kind of thing. You know, the job was, um, I would say, very broad. And I, and I, I learned just so much. The department's at Children's are, for the most part, they're separate 501c3s. What does that mean? That means that they each have a nonprofit status. So the Department of Cardiology uh, for the physicians has its own 501c3 and it has its own nonprofit status. So if you looked up on GuideStar.com, for example, they do a separate filing uh, for their own entity. It's a separate so accounting. they're actually separate entities it, within separate, children's. Exactly. So okay. there's 17, there might be more or less, uh, but there was when I left, 17 foundations, separate, we used to call them the foundations. And what happened was, I think they broke them out in the 1980s. And it was kind of changes in healthcare and the recognition that, you know, to break these out, it was probably fiscally better and, you know, made more sense. So they stayed broken out. And so, for example, the Department of Medicine is a foundation, Department of Surgery is a foundation, urology, I think, was its own foundation. So these are all different. Anesthesia is a foundation. They're all different 501c3s. The benefit of that for me from a learning perspective was I got the opportunity to work with, we had a accountant. I worked with her. We did our own billing and collections, and that was all kind of rolled up under me. And I learned a lot about benefit structure, so the defined benefit, the defined contribution, pension plans, we had a severance plan, worked with attorneys on all of that, we had tuition plans. So all of these plans and you know benefits that fell under the foundation gave me the opportunity to learn about that. I was also responsible for the professional billing for that foundation, for all the doctors, okay. you know, all of their billings and collections and that kind of thing, that rolled up under me. So I had the responsibility of doing that, and I think the... Well, I go back to the University of Iowa, where I said that was some some of the underpinnings that you know really helped me understand the financials and how healthcare works. I would say that's what really kind of teed me up for the Brigham job, because okay. when I went in there, I was doing a lot of the business planning and going into different departments and that kind of thing, and also gave me the you know kind of benefit in terms of going to children's cardiology. So a lot of the billing on that side. I was split 50-50, so 50% of my time was on the foundation side. And I'm talking with my hands right now. Folks on the podcast yeah. can't <laughs> see that. Um, <laughs> but just trust me, it's happening. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you would see the um, foundation side, but there was also the hospital side. And so 50% of my time was spent on the hospital side working with that nursing director for the cath lab and, okay. you know, our echo lab, EKG, so all of the hospital-provided okay. uh, services. So that was some of, you know, my responsibility there. I'd say in terms of the title change, it wasn't a big change. Okay. Um, it was probably more in just 
Um, just to give you appropriate status for I what you're actually doing. I think that's probably what it was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So. One of the things you, you noted you were responsible for was the oversight of philanthropic funds. What's the difference between working with kind of standard revenues coming in and, and philanthropic funds? That's a great question. And, and again, it was another great opportunity to work with some philanthropy and understanding that. Philanthropy is so important to healthcare, and, and Children's just does an amazing job of really integrating philanthropy and recognizing that it really has a place. I think another place that does that is Dana-Farber, um, you know, in terms of the Pan Mass Challenge was just this weekend. And, you know, these are things that help us in healthcare fund uh, maybe initiatives, programs, services that are not otherwise funded. You know, we have limited resources that come back for the services we provide, but philanthropy allows us to maybe, you know, I, I think it was um, today I was reading, the Sunday Globe, I was reading it this morning, but, um, you know, for example, at the Beth Israel Deaconess, they've identified a program in terms of patients in the hospital and really integrating them into the decision-making so a patient kind of commented that she was in a bed next to someone and had this terrible experience because this other patient was undergoing maybe some kind of a code or something like that. So using philanthropy to identify, you know, what are the problems and study that, they, they used philanthropy to do that and try to improve that. So um, philanthropy is really important to the services we provide. The funds are a little bit different in that a lot of times they're earmarked for certain programs. So at Children's, in most places, there's unrestricted funds, so funds that come in and someone just says, you know, I want this to help the Department of Cardiology. Okay. Uh, might come in and say, I want it to help the hospital or organization, which would be a broader use. It might be restricted to cardiology. It might be restricted to something as small as the echo lab. So using those funds appropriately and understanding where they should be, so they might be current use and I can use those right away. It might be restricted in that I can use just a certain amount that spins off. So like your bank account and my bank account, we do earn interest oftentimes. You can't really tell, yeah, but they yeah. do earn interest. It's pretty small these <laughs> it's days. It's pretty small, but, right? Yeah, but. Uh, but the folks at Children's do a great job of investing their philanthropy and their invested funds, and, and it does spin off some dollars that they can use. So, for example, an endowment, you can't touch the principal and the amount that's in the endowment. You oftentimes need you know, about $3 million to, to get an endowment going. And it's not like you need someone to write a check for $3 million, but it's that pledge to have $3 million over a certain period of time. That spins off so many dollars, and those are the dollars you can use for that specific reason that the endowee, or I guess the, the person initiating the endowment might dictate. So that's so philanthropy is a little bit different. Is that what drives like, the, the, se the separation of the departments at the hospital? Was that part kind of why? Or? No, it's a great question. I think the chiefs like that because they do have that autonomy. I um, however, I would say the thing that drove the separate was billing. So um, billing for services, and I don't have the exact dates, but there's the ability to split bill. So, at, and we do that here, here at the Elliott. So, insurance companies still allow you to have the hospital submit a bill for, so let's use an EKG, for example, an electrocardiogram, something that measures the, you know, waves in your heart and kind of reports out to the doc. There's two components to that. One, it's the tech who uses the EKG machine, puts some electrodes on your chest, and they measure your, your waves. I'm probably horribly describing this, but that's about what happens. And then there's the other piece where the doctor interprets it. There's two separate bills for that. There's one for the hospital and there's one for the professional. 
And, and years ago, what happened was this was allowed and, and there's a way to submit these separately. Same thing with an, uh, a visit. So if a patient comes in for an office visit, there's a way that a separate bill can be submitted for the visit for the hospital and the doctor doesn't have to pay rent. What happens is the hospital recollects or gets their dollars back through that technical fee or that technical reimbursement and the doctor submits for his or her time and his or her staff, he submits a bill or she submits a bill and they get paid. So this is why the foundations were formed years ago. I think it was the 1980s. The children stopped with the split billing but they kept the foundation separate. So I, I think that okay. was the impetus. And the Brigham had done that and they were bringing the groups back. Okay. The other thing is, is the 17 foundations got together to form a physician's organization. That physician's organization does the contracting on behalf of the physicians. And they also do a lot of the healthcare and benefits, some of the kind of benefits that they can share together. They do a lot of that um, contracting for them as well. Okay, interesting. You were very busy at Boston Children's working working very hard to do all this, this the grand rounds and all these other interesting things. And at the same time, in 2009, you earned your Doctorate of Law and Policy from Northeastern University. So not enough to just go to work and do all this other great stuff. You were, you were also going to school at night, I assume. It wasn't at night, actually. This was an intensive program. So okay. what they would do is they would do weeks and then it was weekends. Okay. So kind of like night. Okay. Um, you know, I didn't have enough to do. Part-time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was a, a program. It was an amazing program. And um, it was a new program at the time. I, I was the part of the first cohort. And I would say it was being around all of these academics and folks who wanted to really better themselves and wanted to continuously learn and, you know, challenge the status quo and, you know, kind of find out, you know, uh, there's something that I, I don't believe or I don't understand, so I'm going to research it. So it really gave me that kind of yearning myself. So professionally and personally, I, I felt like it was you know, time for me to do something like that. And again, I think it was working with all of the folks I was working with that really kind of gave me that impetus. I went in, and, and this program was really interesting. It, it was a program where you come in and everything you do really builds toward your final thesis. So I went in pretty much with, you know, kind of basic thought about what I wanted to research. So my job at the at Children's saw patients with congenital heart disease both at Children's but also at the Brigham. A lot of our docs went over to the Brigham which is the adult hospital connected by a bridge and it can't, it, you know, kind of I guess it dawned on me at one point that, you know, as we rolled out electronic medical records that there was some downfalls to that. It was great, and I'm very much a proponent of medical records and think it's so important for what we do, but we need to do it right. And if we don't do it right, it's going to cost us. So I'll give you an example. If I have a procedure at Children's, and why would you have the procedure at Children's? Well, because you have congenital heart disease. Most of the docs over at the Brigham are more familiar with acquired heart disease. And over time, adults you know, acquire heart disease, their hearts aren't as working as well as when they were young, and, and they're more familiar with that. But at Children's, that congenital heart disease is a little bit different. Your anatomy isn't structured the same as it is when you're an adult or you know, with, with a normal heart. So the folks at Children's really were familiar with that congenital disease and, and when they were doing diagnostic testing or doing procedures, all of the techs, all of the docs, all of the nurses really understood that. So a lot of the procedures and diagnostics were done at Children's, but when you're admitted, you go to the Brigham because that's an adult hospital. They have sheets that fit you and johnnies that fit you and beds that fit you. So I'm, I'm making that up. But if you had a comorbid disease or something like that, they would be more adapt 
uh, you know, more capable of, of treating you as a whole person. Okay. But it dawned on me that our electronic medical records didn't talk to one another. So because they didn't talk to one another, I wondered, you know, if a patient has testing, labs, EKGs, echoes, and just various kind of services at Children's, when they go over to the Brigham, they need that information to treat them. When it was in a paper file or paper chart that kind of sat on the you know bed next to you when you went back and forth across the hospital, it was all there. But what happened when you went into the electronic medical record at the Brigham after you had been at Children's and you're looking for that EKG or those labs or whatever? Are they going to be there? Are you going to look? You look in the labs where the discrete data is. And, you know, it might be scanned in somewhere else, but it, it's not going to be there. So I did. That's what kind of I wanted to do, and I went into Northeastern, you know, knowing that that was something, and I think. There was a lot of uh, focus on theory and trying to understand, you know, how do you get your point across and how do you find those blind spots and in, you know, your research and, you know, creating policy and that kind of thing. So I was able to really focus on something that was important to me. I was also able to be in a class where, gosh, I remember my first class I felt so inadequate where, you know, I probably was the second youngest in the class and, you know, all these folks had this, you know, rich history and they had just been along around longer than me and but over time I recognized that I really knew my field and my industry and it gave me a little confidence. But it was a great program and it gave me the opportunity to really study something that was important to me. Neat. So after eight years at Children's, you were hired by Joslin Diabetes Clinic as the vice president for clinical operations. So Briefly, let's talk a little bit about Jocelyn and what's its mission, and how is it different from the organizations you had worked with previously? Jocelyn is a center that's focused completely on diabetes, treating the whole patient with diabetes. You know, our mission and vision is really to uh, put ourselves out of business, or was to put ourselves out of business. You know, it was to really find a cure for diabetes. But while we were doing that, it was to treat the whole person with diabetes. It's not just the endocrine system, it affects other systems. My role there was a little bit different than, than children's or any others because it was just so subspecialty focused, but it gave me a good opportunity to, you know, kind of move beyond cardiology. I had been so focused in cardiology and my concern in growing in my career was I didn't really want to pigeon my whole myself just in one department. And this gave me an opportunity to kind of break out of that. Diabetes is such a, a, a big problem in you know, society today. Absolutely. It ties to so many other you know, kind of comorbid diseases. For example, a lot of people who don't have diabetes don't recognize eye disease, kidney disease, neuropathies. So there's so many kind of other aspects of diabetes, uh, behavioral health. You know, there's a huge component, and I think about, imagine being a teenager and going to college and having a pump or, you know, having to inject insulin, having a pump, you know, to inject your insulin, CGM, testing your blood sugars. You're already awkward enough, you know, going into college or even high school, but, you know, to try to understand what this means. So for the family group to come together and, you know, to really understand that behavioral health and social work are really important components of that. Urology is another kind of, um, kind of aspect of cardiology, vascular diseases. So I'd say, you know, Jocelyn is just really deep in diabetes, which was different than, you know, some of the other places I had been. It did give me the opportunity with these subspecialties to understand a bit more about ophthalmology, urology, education, how important education is, nutri uh, nutrition and, and just general diabetes education. Really, you know, kind of learn a lot more about endocrine. And again, the mission of Jocelyn is really, you know, to treat those patients with diabetes in all aspects of their care. So 
what were your responsibilities as the Vice President of Clinical Operations? Vice President for Clinical Operations. Yeah, my responsibilities were to oversee, I would say, all of the administration for clinical operations. So um, what does that mean? That means if we were going to bring in new programs, those were something that I would need to look at and investigate and understand. It was compensation for the physicians and providers. What did their compensation model look like? It was working with payers. Uh, we did a lot with payers to try to look at other innovative programs that we can work on together that reduce overall costs in healthcare and maybe get introduce diabetes care earlier. An example might be if a patient goes into the hospital and they go in for a heart attack, um, but they have diabetes they might stay longer because they have diabetes. So we, we focus on treating the heart attack, but there might be you know getting their diabetes in control. So the heart attack's first, and then you kind of look at the diabetes. Well, that might extend their length of stay two or three days. That's an expensive kind of situation. So how do we introduce that consult or that diabetes intervention earlier in the stay? So how do we do things like that? Uh, we were doing a lot with telemedicine, for example. You know, how do we introduce telemedicine? and it takes a lot to manage your diabetes and going into a organization four times a year how do we make it more convenient for our patients the patients with diabetes are dealing with so much already and how do we make it easier for them revenue cycle rolled up to me health information management rolled up to me education and all of the subsections at Jocelyn also rolled up to me as well so I'd say it was a broad broad swath um, anything administrative kind of rolled up under my purview. And I worked very closely, obviously, with the chief medical officer to, you know, roll these programs out, as well as my directors and managers. Wow, okay. So how did, so you, you were saying you worked with chief medical officer. How did, where did your position fit into the overall organization? Mm -hmm. So um, I reported up to the chief medical officer. Okay. Um, he, we, I sat on the senior leadership team, so I had the ability to, you know, be part of the decision-making, help influence that, you know, bring uh, things that we might be doing at a senior leadership level uh, down to the clinic, helped with strategy. Um, I mentioned some of the programs and things that we were doing. I also took on some other areas. So Jocelyn had an affiliates program. So about probably almost a year, six months before I left, I took on the affiliates program. The affiliates is there's about, there were about 40 affiliates of Jocelyn throughout the country and what we did was we were probably one of the places that took care of the most patients with diabetes so we learned a lot about how to do it how to do it well and it was this kind of it's a PDSA cycle on steroids you know you learn a lot fast so how did we take that and this was back 26 years ago someone kind of came up with this concept how do we take the lessons that we learn there, policies procedures everything else and help organizations that are really trying to implement a better program for patients with diabetes. So those were our affiliates. So they would pay some money and we would work with them. We'd have site visits and we'd help them implement new programs and help support them in their role in, in their uh, delivery of diabetes and diabetes programs. So that was another kind of aspect. We also had affiliated programs. So we delivered a lot of education because again, we knew a lot about diabetes. It was just this concentrated area. So we were taking our lessons learned and things that we you know, learned working with, it might be pharma or industry, to help them educate their specialists or their salespeople or uh, maybe other clinicians. So t we called it professional education. So educating other professionals in how to manage these patients. 
And so, in terms of, oh. just to get back to, I, I don't know if I answered your question, in terms mm -hmm. of leadership structure, you know, I was mm -hmm. responsible for that, sat on the leadership team. And I will say one other thing that our president did was he allowed us a lot of times to sit in on board meetings. So that was another great opportunity to really speak to what was happening in the clinic. Questions had come up. And, you know, we sat on the, on the periphery, but he would, you know, kind of tap into us and say, okay, Bridget, you know, why don't you answer that question? Because that's something you know most about. So it gave us that opportunity to, you know, be part of that and, you know, really understand and learn in so that So you way. started to engage with the governance of the organization mm -hmm. at, that, at that time. Yeah, I, I would say engage or just kind of, you know, be part Observe. of it. Or, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, that, so that kind of leads me to, to, to my next question about this. So you'd been working in senior leadership positions up until this time, but now you, you have this vice president title. So what I hear you saying is you really kind of moved up to a, a, a strategic position in the organization. Can you, what are the implied responsibilities of someone at this level? So I mean, you, you have formal responsibilities, but my sense is when you move into the strategic leader level, you've got kind of a, a broader scope of responsibilities that go beyond perhaps what, you know, on paper for what you are supposed to do? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, it's a good comment. Yeah, I would say, you know, there's probably a lot to think of them right now. I'm probably not going to do a great job, but I'd say some of the implied, I mean, there's really a responsibility to the organization, to the staff. So one thing I felt was important was really to enhance communication. We were a small organization, but to really make sure, and, and I mentioned Children's did a really great job at this, and, and you know, credit to Sandy Fenwick, who's their president and CEO now, but you know, really to make sure folks were on the same page. If we were doing something, you know, how did they fit into that? If we were changing, uh, you know, rooms or space, or, you know, it was small enough so they should know because it's going to impact them. But really to communicate, a lot of it was financial. We. You know, financially, the Jocelyn has a, a challenging business model, but how do we engage staff in um, helping us achieve our mission? So, you know, this is something that I can do somewhat as a senior leader, but really it's about rallying the staff around your mission and giving them the tools and the information they need so they can do their job better. So I think for me, the one thing I felt like I needed to do was, you know, really be a conduit of, you know, providing that information and um, data points that they could use to do their job. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, you know, the f person on the front line, if something changed for us in terms of reimbursement or, you know, something at a national level or something we're doing, you know, or there's an initiative, it's important for everyone to really be aware of that so they can work you know, strategically with us, and we can do that as a, as a partnership and as an entity. I mean, obviously, there's things like fiduciary responsibility and those things that, you know, I have to make sure that I'm, you know, making, you know, good decisions. But I'd say this is the one that really kind of resonated with me at the Jocelyn was really to bring, bring the staff and the team together. One of the things that I've observed, and I've not worked in Boston, but one of the things I've observed, you know, from as an outsider looking in is Boston seems a bit like the Silicon Valley of, of healthcare. And when I draw that metaphor, what I mean is, you know, in Silicon Valley, you see folks moving from Google to Microsoft or, you know, and back and forth around community. And it seems like the community is very fungible. Is that an accurate observation? Do, and, and I'm just kind of looking at your career mm. in particular, having moved through many of these organizations. Mm -hmm. Is that a common thing to see in the Boston area? Do folks move between organizations? Or are you kind of a, a, an anomaly? An anomaly. <laughs> Um, I think so. I think as you grow in your career, probably, 
you know, you're looking to, you know, progress and, you know, I, I think that's what I hope folks see when they look at my resume is, you know, that it was there, there was growth, there was, you know, a stepwise fashion. I'm very deliberate in how I do things, so that might be kind of how I did things. I do think that that does happen. I, I know, you know, I've had students that come to me or, you know, go across the way and, you know, uh, I'll use Sarah Abkowitz, you know, one of the students that I had at Children's. Uh, she was my intern. She then went to, and she was also, she received an award recently at, uh, for HMP. She's a, a great student and great advocate for the program. But she um, was at Children's Hospital as a student for me, went to the Jocelyn, started her career there. She was there for three or four years. Now she's at Children's again. And I think, you know, when she told me she was going there, she was going to work for Jason Dupuy, who I also worked with, who worked for me um, as an administrative coordinator. And I think one thing I like to see, you know, is it makes sense. I, I expect some level of commitment. And, you know, I think I gave folks a level of commitment for some time. But I think that makes sense to, you know, try to grow in your career. And I think, you know, I know I want that for my my students, for the folks who work for me, you know, to help them, to help them benefit and grow. Um, so I think it's acceptable. And, and I think, you know, um, you will see that in Boston. And, yeah. you know, it really is, believe it or not, I, I think about Boston, it's a small community. Yeah. I think that was the hardest thing about coming up here to New Hampshire is I didn't know a lot of the people. You know, going from children's to the Jocelyn or Brigham to the ch their children's, it was easy. I knew, you know, a lot of the people. I could make a call. How do you do this? How does this work? The politics were all the same. You know, this has been a big learning experience for me, you know, coming up to New Hampshire. It's, it's different. I didn't know a lot of the folks. You know, it, I had to learn a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you're right. I think, you know, you do see that, you know, folks move around in Boston and, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think organizationally, it really helps the organization to, to grow. Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't mean to imply that you were job hopping oh. because you because <laughs> you did <laughs> you you did do a number of years at each position. Sure. Clearly, job hopping can can earn you a reputation for yeah. a lack of commitment. But you know, but one of the things you're you're talking about in terms of the Boston being a big city, but it is a small community. I, I wonder you could talk about kind of networking and establishing a, a kind of a reputation in your community. Yeah. And you know, how important is that? You know, I, I if, if you talk to I, any anyone, any of the students I've worked with over the past you know, 15 years or whatever, I think that is so key. It's, I mean, that's, you know, you've hit the nail on the head is networking and, you know, really keeping those relationships or, you know, supporting one another. Uh, you know, I'll get calls. I have a call with someone on the way home today on my drive home, you know, that's trying to network with me. And you give back, you give to, and it's, it's a to and from. And, it, and it's so important, to, you know, kind of know who's on first and where folks are and to help them. You know, they're going to help you too. But um, I think you learn a lot. You know, I, I, you know, just, you know, connected with someone from Mass Medical uh, Society the other day. We hadn't talked in a while, and she kind of saw I changed something on LinkedIn. And you know, I learned so much from her and her job, and, and there's so much learning that can happen there. You know, I can learn what's happening at Children's. I, you know, call up my colleague, and I, oh, this is happening. And it might imply, it might apply to us in what we're doing up here at Elliott. So I just think there's so many benefits of, benefits of networking and really keeping current. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's malpractice or, you know, not to do that. I just think it's so important. Is there a common culture shared by the healthcare community in Boston? Do you see an overlap between the facilities and the people there, or is that a is it or is it really they each have a unique culture and? Um, yeah, that's a good different. question. My perception and others, you know, might have varying uh, kind of perceptions, but my perception is that they are pretty different. Mm 
Okay. You know, I think it's really the leadership and the, you know, clinicians and values and, and the mission that really do drive that. I think it's true. If you look at, you know, children's and how it differs from the Brigham, there's very much a difference there. Uh, the Jocelyn is primarily outpatient. However, we do manage the consults, inpatient consults at, um, at the Brigham. But I would say the cultures are very different. Knowing the players and kind of what happens in Boston really is helpful. But the, the culture, I would, my, my impression is, is that they're very different. Okay. So you worked at Jocelyn until this, just this past spring. When you left Boston and you headed up here to Elliott Hospital in Manchester, where you're now the Vice President for Physician Services. How did you decide it was time to make the jump from Boston? You kind of indicated it, it was a, it's a big jump. It's um, a big jump, so and I was very Even though worried. Manchester's not that far. It's not that far, and my, my commute's not great, but it's okay yeah. uh, from Massachusetts. But um, I felt like it was just time, you know, I think at Children's I was there for eight years, and I'm really not this old, but, and at Jocelyn I was there for five years, and I think I got to a point where at both places, I felt like I had done a lot, accomplished a lot, but to be candid, it's time for a fresh set of eyes. Someone else who comes in and, you know, I have that fresh set of eyes. I think, and I said this to my boss here, I think, you know, folks, when they come in that first year is when you really identify, you know, things that need to change, initiatives that you want to start. How do you, how do you really impact change? And I think that's an exciting time. And I really, I really, you know, kind of get excited about that. And I think, you know, here at, at Elliot, I've been here three months, and there's so many things I want to do. I, I just don't know how to do it all. I will do it all. Um, <laughs> but I think at, at Children's and, and at the um, at Jocelyn, I don't think it, that I was ineffective, but right. I think that a fresh set of eyes wouldn't have hurt them either. Right. So I just thought, you know, from Children's to Jocelyn, it was a nice time, a nice transition, you know, right time for me professionally. And I think the same thing at Jocelyn to here. And you know, they just recently hired my replacement. I, you know, he called me to talk about it. And, you know, I've, you know, left on just such great terms. And, you know, they still call me, you know, how do you do this? And, but I felt like it was time to kind of just make that move. So that's how I knew for me that it was time. I felt like, you know, I wasn't as kind of coming up with as many new initiatives and, you know, a lot of status quo and I wasn't as fresh. So I think, you know, moving once in a while from organization to organization, you can take your lessons learned. You can take you know, some practices and, and kind of identified new opportunities in a new organization. The other thing was a gentleman that I knew of in the community, his name was, or is, Craig Williams. He was at Tufts New England Medical Center as the COO, and he had recently been hired at Elliott to be the COO at Elliott. And he had reached out to me via LinkedIn. Again, networking is so important. And over the course of years, you know, we had talked. You know, I, I didn't know him very well, but we had talked about I think it was Jason who had interviewed at New England Medical Center, and Jason was great. And, you know, we had talked about him, and I had sent him a note. He's a great candidate. But just those connections, he had reached out to me and, and told me about this opportunity. So the more I looked at Elliot, the more interested I became in the role because there is a whole new senior leadership team. Oh, okay. So we have a new president who came from uh, Marion Health System in Wisconsin. We have a new COO. We have a new CNO coming. I think this week. We have a new CIO, came from the Boston Boston as well. We have my position. So it's a really a new senior leadership team and I was a little nervous about that, but I'm really excited about it. And it's been a lot of fun. And I think as I walk around Elliot right now and talk to the staff, they're energized. You know, they there's this 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 feeling of, you know, kind of energy and excitement. The mission you had mentioned at Elliot is to ins inspire, heal and serve. 
So I think that, you know, this is a new mission. We've just recently rolled it out and, and we're living it right now. Uh, there's an era of transparency uh, from senior leadership. I think some of the staff are a little bit kind of, you know, surprised about this, but it's an exciting time to be part of Elliott and, and it's been great. And, you know, working with the senior leadership team has just been a great experience so far. Great. Um, so kind of briefly, how big is Elliot? Well, give, give us a sense of scale and scope, or what, it, what does it do? Sure. Elliot's a good-sized hospital. It's a community hospital. Um, so again, this was a change for me being in, you know, mostly academic. The size is, we have, I think it's 300 beds. We staffed to about two-something, tie twos. I would say that the strength of Elliot is really our community presence. So we have about, in my physician services network, we have about 340 or 50 physicians that are affiliated, employed by the hospital. So we have a number of physicians, and then there's about another 300 that have um, admitting privileges here. A credit to the previous leadership, they recognized years ago that it was important to bring your network closer. So a lot of the primary care and specialist care that was in the community, they started to bring these practices closer to Elliott and they became employed practices. So I think it was a vision, you know, Doug Dean, the, the president before, and Rick Phelps, I've met Doug, I haven't met Rick, but um, to really bring the network closer. So the size of net, uh, Elliott's is really quite large. I think the strength of Elliott is really the physicians and the network. And it's my role to really figure out how do we align this? How do we structure it the right way? I'm working with um, my boss, CMO. I have a dotted line to the COO, and then I report directly to the CMO, Chief Medical Officer, and you know, working with him to try to figure out you know, what's our communication strategy? How do we support the providers in their roles? How do we make their practices operate as efficiently as we can? You know, how do we communicate our mission and vision throughout the network? And how do we get everyone to buy into kind of what we're trying to do? Our mission, you know, our strategic plan really encompasses quality, which is important. So how do we promulgate that? It encompasses growth, uh, sustainability, provider alignment, and uh, employee engagement, and then patient experience. So that's really what we're focused on here at the Elliott. You started to kind of talk about what your new responsibilities are. And you said you report to the CMO, the chief medical officer. Uh, you said you have 350 employed physicians. So that's a very large group practice, right? So what do you, you mentioned the strategic goals just now. What, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? What is a day in the, so far, hmm. three months you've been here, what hmm. is a day in the life of the vice president for physician services look like? You know, so far, it's been a little bit of everything. Uh, we've had some fires to put out, some things that there was, this position was empty for about nine months. You know, we've been working through a lot of, Kind of the compensation obviously with so working through some of that some of the things that hadn't been addressed in some time uh, so i have some you know great directors that i work with here so working with them to you know kind of help you know kind of figure out where do we want to go strategically for compensation plans compensation strategy you know what's our philosophy around compensation so that's been one of the areas the other thing is is um before i came in greg baxter dr baxter my cmo had worked with others to structure an operating board. So the network really has been structured or there's been a leadership structure that's been implemented. So we've really been refining that. And the structure is an operating board and under that there's subcommittees. So we have an operations subcommittee, which I chair, and that is really looking at, you know, how are we, how are we standardizing, I'm giving examples, our primary care practices. 
how do we redesign that practice for the future? How many practices should we have? We've got you know a number now, I, I'm gonna make up a number, 15 primary care practices. Should we have four? What should that look like? What, what do should, you mean by you have some satellite. large So number. if you looked okay. at um, our practices, we might have a practice with two docs in it. A physical building someplace physical out place. in the community yes. with just two doctors. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you've got a bunch of these. And we have a bunch of these, right. So what should that look like? Should we have, what's the right number? Should it be 10 physicians in a practice so we can gain those economies of scale and efficiencies and really provide them with the support they need? Or should it be two? And how do you manage that small practice if you're trying to do that, you know, knowing that they're under joint commission, you know, accreditation and, and all of these types of things. So really trying to figure out operationally how do we do that. It might be something like, um, you know, how do we manage our labs and the satellites? It might be something like, what's our gift policy, policy for providers? So it might be any number of things. The other thing, this, uh, or the other uh, aspect this operating board looks at is provider alignment or engagement. So working with, we have two executive medical directors to roll out leadership um, and uh, performance evaluations. Providers have uh, commented that they don't get a lot of feedback on quality and that kind of thing, so working with them on that. Uh, a finance committee, so trying to engage them in the budgeting process and then engage them in if there's a variance, how do we understand that and how do we dig into some of these uh, kind of areas and, and try to you know work together. And, and be transparent about what we're doing. And then the other is quality and safety. So how do we make sure that we're aligning our quality and safety with what's in our contracts, for example, that we're you know, aligning with what our, our vision and mission is for the organization. So for example, if it's readmissions that we're trying to improve this year, mm -hmm. how do we do that as an organization, as a network? And what are some of the initiatives we need? And how do we make sure that doesn't conflict with length of stay and our financial kind of interests and that kind of thing? So really working, yes, it's not a day in a life, that's a week in the life maybe. Uh, no. um, right. But that gives you a perspective of some of the things Absolutely. we're working on. Mm -hmm. Great. You talked a little bit about uh, some of the initiatives that, that you're undertaking, like quality. One of the big ones that we're hearing a lot with the ACA is readmissions. Kind of the latest buzz is population health, uh, you know, we're hearing a lot of. What kind of efforts is Elliot working on in, in the system? How are you cooperating with other organizations uh, on population health? And what are the economic incentives that, that are actually out there to, to encourage and engage you guys? Yeah. So if it's okay, I'm going to go back to Jocelyn because I think that's where I learned, you know, so much. And, and Obviously, a lot of what we're doing here at the Elliott is around one of our quality in initiatives this year is around diabetes. But I think, you know, if I look at population health, I think of diabetes and, you know, this being one of our, you know, one of our biggest challenges. And as I worked with Jocelyn, we started engaging with payers and trying to understand how do we together find ways to reduce the cost. And it might not be a patient coming into, I mentioned telemedicine earlier, it might not be a patient coming into the organization four or five times or if they're having some challenges or need a little re-education, you know, they're having some you know, diabetes, you have highs and lows and you're, you're having some challenges or maybe you've implemented a new exercise regime and you need some, you know, education on that. Does it make sense for a person to take Think about it economically. Three hours off of work, one hour so they can drive into Boston, one hour so they can have a visit, one hour so they can drive back. Maybe it ends up being a day off. How do we incentivize patients to keep themselves healthier, right, and really take control of their care? So I think one thing that we were doing at Jocelyn, and again, it was really focused on diabetes, so we really had that luxury of doing that, was really looking at working with payers or insurance companies 
to incentivize the right thing. And what we started doing, we had an initiative with Harvard Pilgrim where we started doing televisits. So if a patient was having a challenge, you know, you know, something like that, they could have a televisit or a phone visit. Now that's something right now we're not paid for as a healthcare organization. We're not paid for televisits or, or you know, kind of Skype-like visits. But to be honest with you, we can keep someone out of the hospital if we're seeing that that's the case. Another thing we started using was some technology where a case manager in the office could understand what was happening with a patient. Because a patient with diabetes is oftentimes has a meter or you know they have the data points where we can understand what might be happening. The case manager can look at that and she can understand where someone might be getting into some trouble. There's that outreach to kind of reach out to them and try to figure out, you know, is there something going on? Is there some education you need, some help? We need an adjustment in your meds. Ultimately, to keep that patient from getting to the ER, you know, where that's a $13,000 expense, and we can, you know, try to really get, the, get to those patients earlier and keep them healthier so they're living healthier lives. They're not costing the system so much. You know, I think with um, Elliot, we're a large organization. We're not just focused on one thing, but we are getting into... Uh, contracts where we're trying, and, and most places are, but the contracts do focus on that population health. You know, how do we keep our patients healthier? How do we make sure we're, you know, getting the colonoscopies they need so we're catching, you know, these, these things early on? Mammography is something else we're focused on this year. I think the challenge for us at Elliott, and most places to be candid, I think at the Jossum we were just solely focused on diabetes and we couldn't understand why everyone wasn't more focused on it. <laughs> you know, but the challenge is for a large organization, there's so many different things you need to look at. Yeah. So we're starting to bite off small pieces. This year we're focused on mammography, diabetes, and asthma, uh, you know, using a controller medication. We're gonna focus on those and really roll out ways that providers can uh, document, that we can monitor those and we can report on those. And I think that's how we're going to start looking at these. Now, obviously, these are baked into a lot of our contracts, so there's this fi financial kind of oftentimes upside, but that's what we're really trying to do at Elliott. Great. So you mentioned, again, you're, you're the vice president for physician services. You mentioned that, of course, physicians, like all of us, care about compensation. What else do you see as an administrator looking at, you know, across the across the hall to the providers. What do you see is there, what motivates physicians? You've been around for a long time, uh, around them for a long time. What do you see, I mean, it's compensation obviously, what else, what else motivates them? I mean, I think data is something that's important that we have a lot of. I think presenting the data in the right way. So physicians are typically data-driven. They, they went through their career understanding data and data is kind of what drives a lot of their decision-making in terms of practice and having that Proof that they're making the right decision through the data is important, but making sure that it's right. I think the worst thing we can do as administrators is provide incorrect data that's not been vetted. So I think that you know providing them with that, giving them what they need to do their job, the tools they need. Uh, so data is one thing. Another thing might be staffing. They want to do a good job. So how do we help them as administrators? How do I get them the tools they need so they can do a better job? more efficiently, more accurately, more appropriately. And that's a challenge because you have competing demands. So if I provide more staff, it costs more. And how do I make the business case, if it's possible, that that's what we need? Data. There's so much data out there. You know, I know coming to Elliott, there's so much. We're on a single EMR and it's wonderful. But getting the data out in a format that makes sense, that's been governed, and you know has been vetted through you know that all of the data points are right that we don't have too much noise 
is really important and getting that back out to the clinicians so they can use that in their day-to-day decision-making is really important. So I think, you know, as I think about it, and these are probably some of the things on my mind right now, but those are, you know, two key components I think are really important to physicians. And, and again, they just want to, you know, they want right, to make the right decisions and do what they can for their patients. Okay. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and um, talk about leadership. What would you say is your leadership philosophy? I would say that um, I like to engage with the folks I work with, uh, my directors. I think I like, you know, one of the things I mentioned earlier was the uh, vice chairman who really kind of gave me the information I needed. In terms of leadership philosophy, um, I mentioned to you earlier the vice chairman that I worked with um, really taught me a lot. And, and, you know, I have to say, you know, I think he taught me kind of most about leadership style and you know, one of the things I think is important, I think is important for me is to really give the folks I work with the tools they need so they can do their job. They need a broad perspective. They need information, data. They need details so they can make informed decisions. So I think the one thing I would say is I like to make sure that folks have that, you know, good information. I feel that communication is important. I also like to, you know, really bring in folks who complement one another and me. I don't claim to know everything. Uh, I'll give an example of at, at Jocelyn, I managed the clinical laboratory. I'd never managed one before, but a great manager and leader who, you know, knew how to do his job and, you know, really listening to him to try to understand what were some of his uh, nuances in terms of, you know, leading his staff and, and really making sure that his uh, area was successful. So I'd say for me, it's really giving folks the tools they need to do their job and supporting them. I will never, you know, in front of others, reprimand or, you know, kind of, if there's something that's going on that I disagree with, it's in a closed door, in a closed room with me and my director and, you know, we'll have that conversation and disagree there. But, you know, kind of out in the open, you know, we're always going to agree and we're always going to have that, you know, same perspective. So I think, you know, support of them is really important and giving them the information and the tools so they can have their own strategic framework about decision making in the organization. What do you think are the characteristics of a good leader and how do you aspire to those yourself? I think a good leader is really present. You know, someone who's present, when I say present, yeah, they're, they're around. They, you know, they get out, they understand what's happening. They have a perspective. They're engaged. They're mindful. When they're listening to the staff, they're mindful of what's going on. They're hearing, you know, what, what the issues are. And I think a good leader listens and, and acts on things. I think a good leader can also say no. You know, a good leader makes decisions. They don't leave folks hanging. They have the ability and the confidence, you know, to make those decisions that are sometimes hard. So I think, you know, being decisive, but also, you know, knowing what you're decisive about, you know, really having the framework and, and the mindset and, you know, knowing, you know, kind of the background before you make those decisions is important. Can you give an example of a difficult leadership lesson you had to learn the hard way, perhaps, and what you learned from it? In terms of a difficult leadership lesson, I would say that, I don't know if it's a difficult leadership lesson, but, you know, one of the things that I learned when I came to, to Elliot was I watched, I think I was day five, and I watched a dialogue between a group, I won't say which group, and, and our senior leadership, you know, my boss and the president and COO, and I think it was just exactly that. It was, you know, they were, they were confident in what they needed to do and they were, had the ability to say, no, this is where we need to go. And it was contrary to everything everyone believed in that room. 
but they gave the basis and they you know gave their perspective and they were able to frame it in a way that folks didn't necessarily agree with it but they understood okay. so I think you know for me I don't know if it was difficult for me but it <laughs> the room was difficult but it was you know a frame where they really had to make some dif difficult decisions mm -hmm. and in doing that they did and they were confident about what they were doing and they stuck to it and and they're moving it forward and you know as part of the leadership team I'm carrying that out you talked about a mentor you had back uh, a number of years back that you learned a lot of your leadership from have you had other mentors do you have mentors now the people you reach out to regularly now so I would say Monty Brown has always been you know he he's probably taught me the most um, in terms of you know learning and leadership and that kind of thing and I will say that 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 my um, kind of thoughts aren't shared universally. You know, I think he had a certain leadership style a lot of people liked and a lot of people didn't like. I would say over time I've, you know, surrounded myself with some strong leaders and I, I don't hesitate to, you know, reach out for them to, from time to time. You know, there's um, Kate Walsh who is, she was at the Brigham when I first started reaching out to her. I met with her. She was at a, a women's leadership uh, luncheon and I reached out to her after and she was kind enough and gracious enough to, to meet with me and you know, I think that's what we do is we give back, and that's what she was doing. Over time, I think during my move from Children's to the Jocelyn, and even Jocelyn, when I was starting to think about, you know, what would be my next career move, I reached out to her. I also reach out to her when I see something in the newspaper, you know, she does something really fantastic. You know, I follow her career and try to, you know, support her. She's, you know, I would say in a more senior position than me, but, you know, to do that. I think another person is Sandy Fenwick at Children's. She's president and CEO there. I've reached out to her on occasion to say, you know, what do you think about this? And, you know, and she's, again, always been gracious, always willing to meet with me or, you know, give me some career advice or guidance. So I would say I have, I don't have one per se, but I have, um, I guess a network. network. Yeah, yeah, folks that I uh, reach out to. I also am a member of the Boston Club. It's a women's uh, executive group, and I did a, a mentor. It's a peer mentoring program, which is really great. It gave me the opportunity to kind of think about what did I want to do, and you know, how did I want to progress in my career, and where did I want to be, and you know, just bouncing something off of someone who, you know, wasn't even in the field. Um, she was in development, and, and you know, it was just good to kind of talk with uh, her about different things. So I'd say, again, it's that networking, and it's the ability to, you know, it's it's. A two-way street too that if something happens you know I, I let Sandy know I didn't call her when I was coming here but I let her know I just said hey I'm going to Elliot and you know and she reached out to me and said we were working with them and you know we had relationships with them and so you know it, it's that networking and it kind of also leads to business relationships too sure mm -hmm. so you mentioned you're a part of the Boston Club so some peer uh, mentorship do you have people that reach up to you so young people coming up that uh, reach up to you and, and look at look to you as a mentor? Yeah, um, I, I feel kind of crazy saying, but like to me as a mentor, you know, I, I feel like it's so important to give back and, yeah. you know, anything I can share about things that I've learned with others. Um, I did, um, Suffolk University had a mentoring program most recently that I've done and I've always, you know, committed to staying in touch with those that I've mentored. Usually they're programs, you know, for a, a, a defined time period. But um, I had two students through that. I've done the mentoring program at um, UNH. They had a, a program through UNH broadly. Anytime anyone reaches out to me from, in particular, the HMP program at UNH, it's something I always com committed to and dedicated to. 
I'd say a lot of the students that have come through and been been my students through the internship program will often reach out and say, you know, there's this or there's that. I had lunch with uh, someone on Friday, last Friday, uh, from UNH who was my student. So I think it's important to just keep in touch and anytime someone's kind of making a transition or thinking about something or thinking through something or, you know, uh, you know, someone I had lunch with on Friday said, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about, you know, how to you know, get a promotion at my job or, or those types of things. And, you know, just talking through that with them, I think helps them. I hope helps them. But I, I think it's just great for me to stay connected and, and I find real, a real joy to, to helping them. You participated in, in, in a few women's leadership groups. So I wanted to ask you, as you know, the majority of the students in, in the program that I teach in, in HMP are women. So as a woman, uh, as a woman leader, what advice would you offer them as they're entering the workforce and, the, uh, and entering the profession? I would say, you know, I, I think it's hard, but you have to be committed and, and, you know, you have to know what you want. I think, you know, as a woman, you know, it's challenging oftentimes if, if someone's going to start a family, it's oftentimes, you know, the, the person, the mom who stays home. And I think those are some career choices if you really want to proceed and progress in your career that you can't use as an excuse. I think that you have to find that balance and it's hard it's not easy you know I I wish I was home I have a, a child who I uh, I mentioned last night I was at her swim meet you know finals and you know I I think that's really important but to be able to find that balance between family I have I'm very lucky I have a supportive family but it it, it takes you know I'm oftentimes calling my friends my husband because if I have a late meeting I don't want to say oh I can't because I have to go home so it's about finding that balance and, and never using children or your family life as a excuse I think it's about if you have a job you need to be committed to it and I think that's you know something that's really important for for young ladies or, or women in in you know a career obviously there's a work work-life balance and I, I think you know we need to acknowledge that but I'll say I probably put that to the side in my career and I probably work too much is it my advice I'd give no but I'm pretty glad I did it because it's you know kind of helped me get to where I am you know, and I feel, you know, I've had a, a very fulfilling career. I waited a little bit later in life to have my child because I thought my career was important. I don't know that I advise everyone, but I think, you know, just being committed to your job and recognizing there is some separation and, and, and trying to, you know, just be, when you're at your work, just be completely dedicated and, you know, doing everything that you need to do to, you know, help help your organization or your department. As we, as we talked about, You've sponsored a number of interns from HMP as well as other organizations. What are you looking for when you select an intern and what does a successful intern do while they're on the job with you? That's a great question. So I hope everyone listens to this before they come <laughs> interview. So I would say when I'm looking for an intern, I look for someone who's up for anything. You know, I mentioned to you when I was back in Iowa, I would have washed the floors. I really would have. Uh, because it would have given me a perspective. <laughs> I would have learned something. And I think coming in with that approach that, you know, I'm just here to learn. I'll do, you know, if it means I have to file for a day, I'll file as long as you give me a good experience, you know, on another time. For me, I will absolutely, you know, again, I mentioned my leadership style is to give folks the information they need and to really help them learn about what they're doing. I will absolutely do that for an intern, but they have to give back to me. So I look for someone who's really, you know, engaged and, you know, wants to just, you know, be a good, in, you know, you know, be part of a, a good organization, you know, learn a lot, but also is willing to give back. So that's, that's what I look for. Okay. And, and what, what does a successful internship look like, you think? Mm. To me, it's someone who 
ultimately I offer a job to <laughs> after. <laughs> so that's, I, that's you know, pretty good success. Yeah. So usually I try to find someone who you know um, wants to come and learn. And in the back of my mind, I'm trying to set them up for something. You know, I might not know what it is exactly when they come in. But inevitably, through attrition, this is what we see in organizations, big organizations, there's always something that opens up. So in my mind, they come in the summer of their junior year, and I can help them acclimate and orient to the organization. I can teach them a lot about, you know, a lot of different areas and, and help them learn. Obviously, I want to help them learn. And then throughout the um, next year when they go back, Maybe they come back on vacations and I have projects for them to do. I often, you know, put things aside so they can work on them. And then, you know, at the end of their school year, they, you know, come in and they have a job. And they're already trained and it's great for me and it's uh, great for them. So, you know, they, they graduate. Exactly. All right. So, last question. What advice do you have for someone thinking about going into healthcare administration today? What education should they be pursuing? What kind of jobs should they be looking for as they head out into the workforce? Well, I can't say enough about, you know, my alma mater and, you know, program. I think the Department for Health Management and Policy and the, the program, HMP, is, is really just sets you up so much for, you know, getting into the field. You do need experience, and I think the internship really gives you that flavor. You know, for someone getting into the field, I think years ago, we all used to come out of the program and think we were going to be the next president and CEO. And I probably thought that when I was 15, going to meet with the president of Anna Jake's Hospital. But I think realistically, it takes time. It takes time to learn. This is such a complex, you know, uh, dynamic environment with healthcare. And there's so many changes and so much that's happening so fast. And I think getting into, you know, the field in an entry level position is absolutely, you know, a great place to start. And it's not a bad thing. And I think the other thing is, is as folks get into the field, to find someone, a mentor, to network, to have those folks that have been there and done that, who can help them as they grow in their career. The other thing is, is I think, you know, volunteering. So if you enter an organization in one role, doesn't mean you can't take something else on. If they need a volunteer to go do, I'll make it up, end-to-end -end testing for ICD-10, go do it. You know, think about how much you learn in terms of IT and being with those groups. And so there's so many opportunities for folks to volunteer and, you know, do things above and beyond what their kind of day-to-day -day transactional job might be. So I think really to take advantage of those, find a leader who wants to, you know, help you interview your manager. If you're going into the field, you know, know that this is someone who wants to help you. You know, I think, you know, as a, as a leader or, you know, manager, director, I often ask for a couple years. You know, I'll give you a great experience. I'll teach you a ton. But, you know, give me a couple years, and then I know you're going to move on, and I'll help you. So I think that's what I look for, and hopefully, you know, I think that's what, you know, folks should be looking for as they graduate. All right. Well, that's great advice. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire, and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.